I'm Ellen Wandre. I'm one of the priest associates here, for those of you who don't know. Uh, and I'm glad to be here today while Stephen and his family are up at Lake Tahoe. We hope they may <laughs> not at the Donner Pass, uh, visiting Stephen's mother. I hope all of you are dry and warm and safe. And I ask you to join with me praying for those who aren't. Every time at this time of year, when we commemorate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I find myself caught up in a great tension between inspiration on the one hand and discouragement on the other. Yes, a great deal has changed for the better since and in no small part because of Dr. King's work. And yes, far too much hasn't changed, isn't changing, and you may have noticed, in fact, in some ways, is going in the wrong direction again. We are, in fact, in the midst of a resurgence of racism, anti-Semitism, white supremacy, of hate speech and violence, of deliberate policies and laws that inflict and perpetuate injustice against the marginalized and the vulnerable. Now that's not all that's going on, of course, but it is going on. And it isn't clear to me, at least, how any of that is going to change for the better. So as we commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. and what he represents, there's a real need to sing the songs that we're singing this morning, to listen or to read the great inspiring speeches <clears throat> where Dr. King lays out his vision, so much of it in the language of scripture and especially the words of the prophets. And to remember to call into our present his absolute steadfast confidence that that vision can and will become a reality, helped if we work for it, pray for it, live it out when and where we can, and make spaces more and more in which people can do the same. We need the inspiration. We need the reminder that as Dr. King said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. In times like these, it's easy to lose hope or forget that hope is of God and so ultimately cannot be overcome. <laughs> but this year, I find myself remembering and rereading Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, particularly since it's directed to religious leaders and to white people who advise patience, tact, compromise, and so on. One of the religious leaders, by the way, is the Episcopal Bishop of Alabama. It's a long letter, and it's shocking. It was shocking then, and I find it's still shocking now, because it's a reminder that the endurance of systemic racism, the endurance of oppression and marginalization of all kinds, is not just a matter of ill will. 
Ill will is certainly a part of it. But there's another factor which may be even more important. In the letter, Dr. King underscores that the people whom he is addressing are people of goodwill in so many ways. They recognize that there is an injustice. They're against it. They recognize the change is needed. And all that's to the good. What they don't recognize, though, is the urgency of the situation for those most affected by it. People of color, the poor, the marginalized, those who decidedly are not the community's religious leaders, or the white moderates to and of whom King is also speaking. These people don't feel the urgency because they're not burdened by the situation. Indeed, though King doesn't say this, there are ways in which they benefit from it. So these leaders and others are critical of the peaceful protests that King and others have been leading, the rallies, the marches, the boycotts, sit-ins, and so on. Better, they think, to create change through regular means. Negotiation, persuasion, a gradual change in laws and practices, and other demonstrations of good citizenship through which those who are marginalized can show that they're worthy of what they're asking for. Now, it's very easy and very tempting to be dismissive of these religious leaders and those who share their views. After all, here, now, we know that racism is systemic and deeply entrenched and is not going to be eliminated by more of the same. We know that direct and concerted and sustained strategic action Nonviolent, of course, is needed. We know that we need systemic means of challenging and checking discrimination, inequity, and inequality. We know that constant vigilance is necessary, not only of policies and practices, but also of prejudices, attitudes, and biases. We know that, and it's all true. But what strikes me in rereading this letter this time is that the religious leaders and other moderates are really demonstrating a failure of empathy, of fellow feeling, of imagination. They seem not to understand, not to grasp the degree and intensity and scope of suffering that racism in all its forms imposes on their neighbors. Somehow, they can't extend themselves that far. They can't step out of themselves far enough to have a sense of what life is like for others, both externally and internally, others who are not like them. And I'm shocked by this, not primarily because they were that like that then, but that it is so easy for me and others like me to be like that now. To fail for whatever reason in empathy, to lack imagination, when it comes to the realities of everyday life 
that dehumanize, harm, and even kill those who are not like us. Within the framework of the Christian life, failure of empathy and of imagination is a failure to love the neighbor and to welcome the stranger as neighbor. And failure to love the neighbor and the stranger is also a failure to love God, who created us for each other and who wills and longs for our healing and wholeness as a people, as humanity, not just as individuals. <coughs> not to put too fine a point on it, racism, oppression, and marginalization are sinful. And I find that approaching them in those terms is a help. Which is to say, when we think and talk about racism and oppression, we need to do so in terms that call us as faithful people to account. In part, that's a matter of the integration of our faith with our whole life, and that's another sermon. But what I want to point to today is not that, but something that's actually well, more strategic. When we see racism, oppression, marginalization, and the like as sinful, we're not only recognizing the truth, we're also using terms that remind us that in fact we know something about sin and about temptation and its effects, and we know something about what we need to do when we encounter sin, when we sin ourselves when we are affected by sin, willingly or not. We know that sin requires repentance, genuine heartfelt sorrow and grief, together with recognition of the need to change, make amends, to be reconciled. And not just recognition, but action, going ahead and making change, making amends as deliberately and consistently and persistently as we possibly can. And when we fall short, and we know we always do, we know it is important to get back up and not give up. Which points to another thing we know something about. We can't do this on our own by ourselves. To deal with our own sin, we need each other for strength, for comfort, for support, and for that ever so important realization that we're not the only ones. And even more, we need the grace of God, the work of God in our lives that strengthens and transforms us and the whole world. So I find at least that when I put things in that familiar framework, the framework of spirituality and faith and worship and reflection, if I put these big, difficult problems within that framework, I find that I'm not quite so baffled and confused and I don't feel quite so helpless as I might otherwise feel in the face of what are, after all, large, pervasive, obdurate, and complicated phenomena as racism and oppression are. In Christianity Well Lived, 
We talk about sin not to shame or to blame or to stimulate guilt, but in order to point to redemption, to say that sin is not the last word, to point to God's desire and will to set us free and to heal us. No matter how far we've strayed, no matter how much we've done wrong, no matter how much we have failed to treat others and ourselves as fully human, God will not and does not turn away or let us go. Because God is good, though we may not be. And when we talk about sin, we point to the fact that we're never alone. Each of us, all of us, have sinned, do sin in various ways. And each of us, all of us, have been named and claimed by God through Christ as beloved children. And God is faithful, though we may not be. Anything, everything that degrades, that dehumanizes, that denies dignity, that blocks well-being, that is a sin. And it's a sin of omission as well as commission. Not only things done, but things left undone. And we are called by God in Christ to turn away from that and to turn toward not just respecting, but fostering, nurturing, protecting, fighting for the dignity of every human person, for our neighbors, for those who are strange to us, even as we do for ourselves. We are called to empathy and to imagination. We are called to be shocked, not for shock's sake, but in order that we together may participate in transformation and healing. Now, knowing all this, being experienced with all this as we do, as we are, doesn't tell us exactly what we are supposed to do about racism and injustice or privilege. Doesn't tell us how to do it or with whom. It just tells us that we are indeed called to do it and we are not alone in that. There's no doubt, none at all, that we have to continue Dr. King's and others' struggles against racism, oppression, marginalization, and the like, against systemic and direct injustice and violence, and against dehumanization and degradation. There is no doubt that we do and that we will encounter disappointment and discouragement. There is also no doubt that visions of justice, equity, and fairness, of healing and reconciliation are deeply, inherently, and eradicably part of the vision of God. The vision we have of God and God's kingdom, but also the vision that God has for creation. We are confident. We stake our lives on that vision coming to pass. And so we have an infinite and invincible hope, even in times like these.
Amen.